Welcome to the Grace City Church Podcast, where we believe that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to others, and to make us reconcilers. We're so glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're watching, God is doing transforming work in you through this message. Here's the three key words or ideas for you uh, today, submission, internal, and external, and authority. So those are the words to be tracking with um, as we continue. So what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to read the text one more time, uh, and then I'll pray. Uh, We are in a series called Upside Down Leadership. Uh, The first two weeks have been really laying the theological foundation for this idea of thinking about leadership differently in the way the world talks about it. The world says, exercise authority over the people that you've been leading. Lord it over them. That's what Jesus says, the world says. Jesus says, not so with you, meaning the people of God. Instead, we're to serve not just to be served. He says that uh, he didn't come to be served. And then we got to see something I think really special, just thinking about the power of Jesus that's articulated in the text and then how he uses his authority in John 13. Jesus from the place of power with full recognition of who he is, that's what the text says, he gets down and he washes the disciples' feet. The, the hands that threw the stars into the universe scrubbed dirt off of those those disciples feet and that's the model leadership he gives us to use our authority to be last to use our position to ask the positions God has given me how am I using it to serve others the very authority he's given me how am I using it to promote others so we've done all that these next three weeks are real practical so we're talking about the home today talking about work next week then we're talking about the church the third week uh, after that. So let me read this, and then I'll pray for us one more again. It says, 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> Wives, in the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should come not from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Let us pray. Father, we come before you now and um, with a text like this, we have some requests to make of you. We want to pray that all baggage that we have because of different cultural views of leadership or maybe even past experiences, we just pray you would would speak in to all of those things. There might be barriers we have up. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would get around the barrier because you can tear down barriers. You tore down the wall of hostility and you can tear down walls of hostility in our heart. We pray for faith to believe that your word is what you say it is, that it's good for us. And we pray that there could be healing in this time and understanding. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. So, um, uh, again, looking forward to our time together, First Peter 3. Uh, we can read a text like that, and there's some words that might get us distracted. Amen. Y'all know what they are? Just kidding. Of course you do. Um, <clears throat> of course you do. You know what I'm saying? So we read it and you hear submission, and some of you are like, what does Pastor going to say about submission? There you go. Nick is really rubbing his hands together, okay? So it's like, what, what is he going to say? You know, and then you get your gentle and quiet spirit. I don't resonate with that, Pastor. You know what I'm saying? Like, some of you are like, I don't resonate with that. And then to cap it all off at the end, women are the weaker partners? You say, I'm done. Peace. I'm out of this church, you know what I'm saying? Like, but here, here is the hope as we look at this text. Here, here it is. Before we check out, this is the hope. 
is that we could take God at his word, which he says his word is good. And what it says in 2 Timothy 3 is that that goodness is for all of us. That it that has a good word or a good thing or it wants to be for our benefit to equip the saints. Like that there's something for us in this. As we think about the, this, this topic is leadership in the home. And as, as you think about maybe what leadership in your home was like growing up, it could be varied based on your cultural experience, right? For some of you, your mama was the leader of the home, wasn't she? Like, like she was out there getting things done, taking care of business. Like she knew the deal and she would get people where they need to be on time. And you, the way you knew she loved you is because she did what the Bible said. She never spared the rod with you, did she? She loved you. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that's your mom. Like some of you, that's what it is. That was what it was. And for others of you, you have cultural spaces where you grew up hearing and, and maybe because of the Bible that the, the husband and the father is the head of the household. For others of you, you might be thinking about things like, okay, well, what does this mean for me now? Like I'm a full-grown adult, not in the home. I'm not married. I don't got kids. So now what? How does this relate to me? But, but here is our hope, again, that this, that this could be for us today as we talk about leadership in the home. And I believe this text actually has great application for all of us, specifically through looking at the lessons in leadership learned from a wife. That's what we're going to look at this morning. You in? I hope so. You don't really have a choice. Uh, wives. It says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Wives, in the same way. So we jump in in series like this, kind of mid-letter, uh, mid, mid-book of the Bible, and it says, in the same way. Whenever it does something like that, it's clearly pointing to what came before it, right? In the same way is what it says. Well, what does it mean in the same way? Here's what it means in the same way. Previously, it had just talked about servants submitting to their masters. And before that, it actually talked about how all of us, for the Lord's sake, are to submit to governing authorities. And now it's saying wives in the same way. One of the things, though, if you go back and read chapter 2, and I would encourage you to do it, is in chapter 2, when it talks about submission to this kind of principle, it's always given a reason why. And you got to pay attention to the reason why in, ch- in chapter 2. It's beautiful. The reason to submit to governing authority, it says, for the Lord's sake. In other words, because he's God, because he's in control, because he's in authority, because he's present. So for the Lord's sake, we submit because he's our Lord. And then if you look at when it's talking about servants submitting to masters, it actually goes on and it starts to talk about some of the hardship that can be associated with it. And it talks about the sufferings of Jesus. And then it says this, this is right before our text. It says, he bore our sin in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So it's talking to those servants and saying, why this type of life? Because Jesus suffered for you. And, and here's, the, here's in the same way, and, and i got to belabor it a little bit because we're going to come back to it at the end, and it's crazy important, all right? But here, here's why I do that is because it's saying in the same way, yes, this idea of submission, yes, something might be hard, but it's pointing to because Jesus is Lord and because he's Savior, because God is creator and he's redeemer. That's why we do what we're going to do. And that's kind of the impetus behind it. In the same way, submit yourselves. Now, as we talk about submission, again, I think a lot of different ideas and thoughts can come up about what submission is or what submission isn't. So let me show you a slide from Tony Evans just talking about submission and commentary of this passage. He says this, <clears throat> submission is not passive. Many of us think submission is passive. It's just yielding and withdrawing. But what we're going to see in the text this morning is this everything but passive. It's actually very active and involved. Second thing, it has nothing to do with intrinsic value. Now, here's been a prayer that we, are, our prayer team, and we're praying for us in light of this text today as we talk about submission is that we would start to throw off the way the culture defines the terms and believe what God has to say, honestly. Because the culture is going to say it has something to do with value. 
has something to do with worth. That the person of lesser value should submit to the person of greater value. But listen, this text is going to say the exact opposite of that. It's beautiful. Third, it's a voluntary act. Though God commands it, we do it by choice, not by coercion. Here's how you can see this in the text. It's not written to men, this part, it's not written to men saying, husbands, make your wives submit. Instead, it's written to the person underneath the positional authority, encouraging them to do it. So what does that mean? Here's what it means. Follow me. It means that he's saying, you choose to do this in light of who God is, not the person in authority demanding it. Listen, that would literally kind of, it would undermine so much of like the, the abuse and the misuse that happens around this idea of submission. It's not, this idea is not for us to grab it and for men to grab it and say, can I tell, can I read you a verse, baby? That's not what this is. That's not what this is. The husband's got something else to do. The husband's got something else to think about. It's going to tell us. So it's not saying person in positional authority, use your authority to make the person underneath you submit. Instead, it's saying person underneath a positional authority, how are you stewarding your position? And here's, here's what I want you to see, right, when we're talking about the idea of submission, is that there is a reason given in the text. Let's go back to the text. I want you to see it. Wives, in the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands, you see the next part, so that, that's a purpose statement, so that your, your husband's lives will be easy. Wait, I don't know say that part. So that men can rule the world. No, I don't say that. What's it say? Submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Submit so that. Do you see, listen, I want you to see this. This is how you see it's active, right? Like there's a purpose behind it. There's something that's happening. Submit so that you might influence your husband for them to be won over to Christ. This is why this is such a big deal. The submission has purpose and intention, and that intention is influence and change. Submit so that the husband might be won over, so that the husband might be changed. This is what th that means about submission, family, if you're following me. It means that submission is an act of power. Leveraging power for influence. It's an act of leadership, of, of influence. Because how does the world typically define leadership? Influence, doesn't it? A lot of times it's influence. And what is it telling wives to do? Wives submit so that you influence your husband so that they will come to know Christ. And you love the play on words. It says for, for, so that those who don't believe the word might be won over without words. I was having a conversation after uh, last week's uh, sermon with one of uh, our members, and we were just talking. It was a good conversation, and she was saying, you know, I, like, I believe in this idea upside down and all this kind of things, but I find myself in situations where I'm not typically the person in positional authority. Like, we're talking about leadership, but I'm not usually the one who has positional authority, and they're a student, and so there's Lots of different moments where they're really not. They're like, I'm kind of just underneath it. And she's like, well, what does it mean to leverage authority and power when you're not in the position of power or authority? You know? And she's like, yeah, I remember we talked about, like, how everybody has authority and power, like how babies do. Y'all remember that? Like, babies cry and their parents respond. Like, that baby is powerful. Some, some kids up in here, like, you see them, they'd be like, mama, I want this. And they're like, yeah, baby. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's crazy. Like, that baby is powerful. But it's like, well, what does it actually mean? Well, well, this is a way the Bible says we can actually leverage influence and power when we're not in the position of power, and it's through submission. It's through submission. 
do you know that submission is an act of power when done right? This submission has purpose. Look at the text. The submission has purpose so that you'll influence your husbands and they may be won over. Have you ever heard the phrase knowledge is power? In this situation, who is the person with knowledge? The wife. Yeah, there you go. Many of you mouthed it, but I wanted to come out loud, right? The wife is the husband in the position of, of knowledge in this situation. They're not. Literally, Peter's saying in, in this situation where your husband might not have knowledge of God, this is how you steward your knowledge power. This is how you steward it. One commentator on this passage said, when a spouse becomes a Christian, it should benefit the marriage, not undermine it. When the spouse, like an unbelieving spouse, becomes a Christian, it should benefit the marriage, not undermine it. In other words, when Christians acquire knowledge, it should benefit people without the knowledge, not undermine them. So let me tell you an illustration that also I think is an application for some of us who are adults out here. I guess most of us are uh, adults out here with, with parents. So uh, when I came to know, I came to know Christ right uh, after, or during my senior year of high school and then kind of into college. And, and, and like things started changing for me. I was like, oh, wow, like this is what, like this is what this is about. You know, I've been around the Bible, but I'm like, this is, this is different. Like there's something real about this. And, and people were talking and I was reading my Bible and I was like, wow, there's like truth like, there's truth here in the Word of God. And when I came to know Christ, like, I literally, I did become more powerful than I had been. Um, like, I was more confident because of who, who God was and things like this. And, I mean, if you would have known me in high school, you'd be like, yeah, that dude was, you know. But, like, like I was like, wow, you know. And I, and I started hearing things, and I was really encouraged. And, and I, I acquired different types of knowledge. But this is what happened to me going back into my family unit, the unit that I was raised in, instead of using that knowledge in submission and gentleness and kindness to benefit the family, my knowledge became destructive. I literally remember having a conversation with my dad about the historicity of Christ. And I would, like, there was no grace in me. I was like, let me prove you wrong, daddy. You know what I'm saying? I was like, that's what it is. And, and I don't know if any of you can relate, but sometimes, like, we grow in knowledge, and instead of knowledge doing what biblical, godly knowledge is supposed to do, which is to humble us, it puffs us up. And we can use it to tear down. And sometimes that happens with family dynamics, doesn't it? I, like, I wonder what your parents would say. Would your parents say, you know, the fact that, you know, my, do my adult daughter or son is following Jesus, that has made my life better. Or they say, no, they're just a lot more, they're harder to deal with now. But, but you notice, again, it's this idea that use knowledge, how to use it to win them over, how to do that with purity and reverence of your lives, that your, that your life would be used for the benefit of the other person, right? Like that, you, that your life would be pure now. Like now that you have knowledge of God, you're not, you're not, you're not trying to kind of go out and get yours. Now you're realizing you are somebody else's and you're set apart. And so that's why you pursue purity, right? We pursue purity because we're not ours. We're somebody else's. And so now with this new knowledge, there's a purity of your life. There's a reverence. Reverence is like fear, but not fear of the husband by any means, fear of God. You're like, I know he's Lord. I know he's Savior. So that's how I'm going to relate to. That's how I'm going to live my life so that those who don't believe the word might be won over by the word. So submission, what's submission? Sub the word literally does mean low, it's lowering. Why would we do such a thing? We would only do such a thing because we understand this is how Jesus does it. This, like, so here's a prayer. I'm saying this last service too. Here's a prayer. Like, culturally, this, this word, when we talk about this idea, there's so much cultural baggage. And I believe some of us, like, it's, 
it's pers- it is real, it's personal. We feel like some of the, the church, the way the church has talked, has like uh, limited who we are as people. And I think that's legitimate, and you're wrestling with that and thinking about that. But I also think that there's like a space in thi- this particular generation, not necessarily the generation above us or underneath us. I mean, a little bit. I'm 34, so I'm kind of speaking to my age people for a second. And I mean, really 20, you know what I'm saying? Like, But there's something around this idea where it's just not even cool to talk about it. Like, like if we were to embrace the idea of it, like it wouldn't fit in even to Christian culture anymore. It's like more appropriate to go, ooh, submission. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just not. And one of the my prayers is that we would start to see God's vision for his word. That we'd start to see the way God defines his word. That we would throw off cultural baggage and we start to embrace what he has to say. Literally going, it's his word. He uses it. He talks about it plenty and he does it. He does it. If you read John's gospel, it is crazy the way you see Jesus going, I'm only going to do what the Father does. If the Father says it, I'll do it. If not, I'm not going to do it. You're like, Jesus, even you? Or you look, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before the cross, he's on his knees going, Father, will you take this cup? But not my will, your will be done. And then what does he do? Jesus, why would we do this? Because Jesus is in the business of doing this. We've been talking about it, right? Like, he chooses to do this. It's a choice he makes. What choice are we going to make? It's a choice he makes. He chose to not be served, but to what? Serve. He chose to not get his feet washed by some servant, but to get on his knees and wash his disciples' feet. He chose, what does it say in Philippians chapter 2, family? He chose, not even though he was by nature God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. In other words, he chose to not be considered equal with God, and instead he made himself nothing. This is what Jesus does. So here's my question to all of us, regardless of our home situation, regardless of our gender, regardless of everything, is how or are you using submission as a means to influence somebody else to love God? How are you using submission, this is, this is explicitly what the text says, as a means to help somebody else love God. This is what they're commissioned to do, is to focus on their lives. To not just always use the words, but to let their lives be an example of something. Doesn't mean you don't ever use words, but let your lives to be an example. And I'm curious if we're doing that. One thing again, too, submission is not yielding. It's not just withdrawing. It's not going, like those aren't really acts of power. That is passive. Submission's not going, hey, I just don't want to make a decision, so you make the decision. That's not, what we're, that's not what this text is talking about. It's not self-focused. Instead, this is a very intentional choice that is made in order to influence and win the people around you towards Christ. That's the kind of biblical idea around submission. So I hope you're following me. I think that's very important. When you see the purity and reverence of their lives. Again, it's, it's this idea that your life will be this type of model. Verse 3, then it says this. Kind of keeps on. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. So he doesn't say it's a sin to uh, be beautiful externally or to braid your hair or wear jewelry. That's not what he's saying. So some of you, you're all right. You're good. No worries. He's not saying it is a sin to do it, but he is contrasting it, okay? He's saying, it's not saying that that even isn't beautiful. He's saying, but there is a different type of beauty you need to be focused on. We need to be focused on. Look what he says. Instead of that, rather, verse 4, it should be that of your inner self. Everybody say inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth, in the sight of God. So he says, listen, the world's view of leadership, it's, 
It's going to talk about the external, what you can accomplish and what you can do. But he says God's view of this idea is instead to focus on the inward self, the place where beauty will never fade, the enduring beauty. It's so backwards in the way the world talks about it. Here's, here's some stats, if I can remember them right. Um, thinking about, because I think it's so easy to focus on the external, right? Uh, Americans spend $8.2 billion on gym memberships a year. It's a lot. Trying to get swolled up, you know what I'm saying? Uh, 397 million of those dollars are unused gym memberships. Some of y'all need to cancel your membership. You ain't going to go, you know what I'm saying? This is the highest in the world, our country. $49.2 billion spent on cosmetics. And you just wonder how many hours back would we get as a person, as a society, if, if we stop focusing so much on the external? Stop focusing so much on what our social media is going to look like. Stop focusing so much on, like, like literally, I had a, f- a funny conversation at the end of the last service about this, but like, h- like how many hours back would we have if we no longer like worried about what we were going to wear or look like in a given day? I know some of y'all used to be like, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. What's it going to be today? I was like, I can be insecure as a pastor. It's like, did I wear this last Sunday? You know what I'm saying? I, gotta, I get up on the, on the app and check. Really, I do this. I check last Sunday. I'm like, okay, I didn't, I didn't wear that. I'm good. But it's like, it's like, literally, I was literally like, should I, I don't, I was like, this is linen. Should I iron this today? Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like, we all do it, right? We all do it a little bit. But it's like, he, and he's not saying any kind of thoughts on external beauty is bad, but he's saying there is a, there's something better. There's something better, and it's inward beauty. And, and let me, and I, we're talking about the home. Please hear this. The best gift you could give your home, the best gift you could give your spouse, the best gift you could give your roommate, the best gift you could give your parents or your kids is an unyielding commitment to focus on inward beauty. An unwavering dedication to the inner self, to the inner life. To say the gift I'm going to give my home is not more money in my workplace. It's not a promotion. It's not the best house. It's not the best cards. It's not whatever I need to do to make my body look right. Instead, I'm going to focus chiefly on the inward person and give my home a person, a man or a woman who loves God deeply who's captivated by the Holy Spirit in the way he speaks and moves and convicts, who is enchanted with the word, who has a robust prayer life, who, who is willing to, be, to set yourself apart, to be pure, to do things that other people are doing, but you say no because you know you're the Lord. That is the best gift we could give our home. This idea of focusing on the inward is expansive in the Bible. I mean is, it starts just with the inner self, and then it goes out a layer, and we'll talk about husband-to-wife relationship, and then it'll go out a layer and talk about home, and then it'll go out a layer and talk about church, and go out a layer and talk about work. And it, it kind of expands like that, saying, but it's good to focus on inward. So much so that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when it's talking about qualifications for an elder or a pastor— It says, if he cannot manage his own family well, how can he take care of God's church? And it's like, how many pastors just needed to read their Bible more? (laughs) Like, because how many of us have messed up our families because we were pursuing ministry and neglecting the ministry in the home? But the, but the same is true, I think, for many of us, right? Like how many of us get more enthralled with our workplace? Like I was, God has really convicted me. He's like, where's, well, where's the be- your best leadership energy going? Your best strategy, your best thoughts, they go into your, your work or your home? Inward self and your family? Um. You know, one of the things in here, it says what God values, what's great worth in his sight is a gentle and quiet spirit. And I was thinking about how 
uh, I've never read, le- I've read lots of leadership books. I've never read a leadership book that talks about um, the leadership quality of quietness. Or really like gentleness. Like, like it doesn't write about this kind of stuff. Or submission. You know, like, like it's not like, hey, you want to be a good leader? Submit. Like it doesn't, like it's not that. And, and it's talking again about this, qui- this quietness, you know. And, and like when you see those, those, those leaders depicted, they're not depicted the way the Bible would depict them. Like, like you don't get a, a, a picture in that book of, of the stay-at-home mom who, who's just like getting their kids to school on time and getting them fed. Because that takes leadership energy and strategy. Amen? Like that's a lot of work. You know, or the single mom who's like, who's doing both things or trying to navigate out work and, and home and just, and, and all the leadership energy that is required to make that happen. Or the dad who goes in late or comes home early to spend more energy in his home than at work. Who cheats his work to make sure they would never cheat their home. I remember... Um, at the last church I was at, it was a big church, and it was like thousands of people, multiple campuses. There was a guy who taught the most, and um, I'll never forget something he did that really marked me. Uh, what they would do is they would record sermons on Saturday night, and then they would show them at, other, at, at a service, like a, like a church service, and they would show them on Sunday morning. Um, and some other live teaching too, but we'd show them on Sunday morning. But the Saturday night was always live, and there was a service there. And I'll never forget one time this pastor decided to, instead of record it Saturday night to the church service, to record it Thursday afternoon to an empty room so that he could attend his son's track meet that Saturday night. And as a young man, I was like, that's not intuitive to me. I was like, here's this service that's like full of God's people. Like, you're the one set to preach. You don't preach every week. You're the one set to preach that week. Shouldn't you do what you're responsible to do? Like, that's your responsibility. But he was making a decision that said, I'm going to put my ministry to my family above my work. I was like, dang, that's different. And before you're like, you know what? Like, that's an excuse I can, I can value, you know. Kids sports over church. You know, like, like that's actually him, him cheating work. One of the best examples we can actually give our kids is a commitment to church. Actually. Like you're talking about focus on our inward self, it's a commitment to that. But, but the question again is, like, are we willing to cut things out in our life to make sure we focus on the inner self? Where there's unfading beauty. And, a, and commit to, like, a gentleness and a quietness, which is of great worth in God's sight. Listen, God's values are so different than the cultural values. Like, it says right here, God values gentleness and quietness. Let me show you this text from Ephesians chapter 4. I, this is, I love this text, and as I was thinking about these ideas, it reminded me of this. Ephesians 1 through 3 are, like, incredibly strong, theologically rich texts. And then it gets to four, and it's going to move into a bunch of application, and this is the transition. Paul, this is the author of this book, is a prisoner. And so he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And you're like, dang. Like the calling of following God, the the gospel. I urge you to live a life worthy of the call. You'd be like, okay, I mean, I've got to go die, right? i got to go, like, on mission. Like, i got to, okay. Worthy of the gospel. And then what's he say? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. God's values are so different than ours. When he defines a great leader, he says, be humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love over time. Focused on. Again, on their benefit. Like, I'm trying to give something to them. Like, Jesus consciously makes the decision to serve us, makes the decision to elevate us, makes the decision, like it says in Philippians chapter 2, to consider other people's interests above his own. And that's what this is. And that's the admonition for us in the home, too, towards this kind of gentleness and quietness. Verse 5 of our text. 
he, he's talking about this inward focus and this idea of submission. And then he talks about an example of the past. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called her her Lord. Called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and don't give way to fear. So what's this saying? This is saying, Peter's speaking to women, he's saying, this has been the way it has been. This is the way God has done things. Like, this has been happening. And if we continue down this pathway, we will be in light, uh, in alignment with the saints of the past is kind of the idea. One of the things that's very interesting, though, is it says, you are her daughters, like you're doing what's right, if you do what is right and don't give way to fear. That's like, I think that's kind of interesting. You're her daughters. If you do what is right and don't give way to fear, that there's some type of fear that would get in the way of obeying these commands. That's what it's saying. We ain't, I ain't going to talk about this a whole lot. But here, here those of you Bible nerds who like the scriptures, like, what fear is he referring to here? It would be worth exploring. It's not fear of God. That's a good thing. So it's not saying don't give way to fear of God. So it's saying what type of fear, maybe this is a question to ask yourself, what type of fear might hinder you from this type of upside-down leadership that involves submission? What fear might come up? Is it a cultural fear? Is it a fear of not realizing something you'd want to realize? Is it a fear of being seen a particular way? There's some type of fear that can stand in the way of this. And then verse 7. Verse 7 is really good. So for the first six verses, it's been talking about wives, kind of painting this picture of what submission is and, and using their position to, to love and influence. And then he pivots and talks about husbands. And look at how he starts it. Husbands. What does he say? In the same way. You remember? Husbands. In the same way. Y'all remember? In the same way, right? Like, like, that's how it started our text when it was saying, hey, wives, you're doing this. Why? Because servants do it and then all people do it. And now he's getting to husbands and say, husbands, in the same way. In the same way. And here's what's beautiful about the text. Now, the words are going to be different, but here's what you see. That there is a principle in the scriptures that Peter is appealing to. Something that is true about who God is. Something's true about the nature of God. And says that although this principle might land differently, it's the same principle. Does that make sense? He's pointing to, in the same way, he's pointing to the same principle, even saying these manifest themselves, the, the application of the principle manifests itself differently based on your uniqueness. Under a governing authority, this is how it manifests itself. And when you're in a servant situation, this is how it manifests itself. When you're a wife, this is how it manifests itself. When you're a husband, this is how it manifests itself. And what is the thing, if you remember from the beginning, is that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. He is our Lord. We all submit. We all do. Because he's our Savior, because he who knew no sin became sin so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. Or it says, says it right here. Like, let me just read it to you so you see it. 24 of chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body. This is in our text. On the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. He was wounded We've been healed. So because of that, we all got somebody to submit to and something to do. And although it looks different for different ones of us in different situations, in a sense, it's the same. That's why he says, in the same way. Be considerate as you live with your wives. That word considerate is gnosis, and it means to know. Live with them in a knowledgeable way is the idea. Take their uniqueness into consideration. This is how we say it in our culture. Be a student of your spouse. Don't just think you know. 
pay attention. When you're in a position, position of authority, never just lead without taking consideration into the people you're leading. Be considerate in knowledge. Pay attention to their uniqueness. For parents in the room, we must be intentional to recognize that our kids are each unique and need unique parenting from us. Be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. So I read a bunch of commentaries, just kind of on, on the text in general, but on that phrase in particular, weaker partner, and every single one I read said that Peter is saying that God has generally, not always, but generally created women as physically weaker than men. That's what he's saying. And he says, respect that. Respect that there's a difference. Now, that's not always true, but respect that there's a difference. And as heirs of the gracious gift of life. So we're going to talk about that. And then look at what he says. Remember how to, remember how to submit, how to sow that? Y'all remember that? Sow that. You can win them over. This has a sow that too. What does this say? Be considerate. Respect them. So that what? Nothing will hinder your prayers. That's when you go, what? That's when Peter like squares off. I, for real, he like, if you don't live with them in a considerate way, if you don't pay attention to their uniqueness, if you just out here living sideways, if you're not respecting and understanding their needs and being compassionate, you know what? God ain't going to listen to you. Your prayers will be stopped is the idea. Literally, God's saying, I'm going to turn my back on you. Here's why this is so meaningful, in my opinion. I, I went to, um, this has been about four years ago, I got invited to go to a, um, a, a group meeting um, from women who are victims of domestic abuse. And I got to go because I was a pastor. They was invited because I was a pastor. And so I just sat in the back and listened. And it was one of the, if not the, like, it was one of the most horrific things to, to hear. Because they, they were, just, and I was so thankful for the space that was created, but they were just sharing stories and the things that had happened. Like, and they were being more detailed because of what the room was and the things that had happened. I can make, make you not want to sleep, like be unable to sleep. And like so much of it, not all of it, but so much of it was in the church. And you're like, dang. And it breaks your heart. And that is true. But this is why this text matters so much, in my opinion. Because this text says that's not what God wants. That's not what God expects. And for those people who are the abuser, God has turned his back on them. And that's why we got to be thankful for a God of justice. Amen? Because he has. This is who our God is. He is a God of justice. And he's a God who identifies with the weak. He just is. So here's the thing, like, if you find yourself in a situation where you are getting angry and things like that are happening, like now's the time to come say something. Like now's the time to come say something and not think, hey, it's just going to get better over time. It's going to get worse. Now's the time to come say something. And here's what's crazy is God is gracious and merciful and even forgiving to the abuser. But here's another thing I need to say. If you are in that situation, like, like, we are by far imperfect, but there is a God who's perfect, and he does not want you to be in that situation, and he wants you to get out. And we want to, like, help in any way we can. That's part of what the church is for, is to help realize the values of God. But God is in the business of identifying with the weak. If you read the scriptures, it is all over the place. It's all over the place. 
he identifies with the hurting. He identifies with the marginalized. Just like read it and pay attention. It's crazy. I mean, I mean, at times he's like, listen, if you didn't care for the person in prison, you didn't get, you didn't feed the hungry person, the thirsty person. He's like, you missed me altogether. And this is kind of what you get here too. Is that kind of idea? And and here's here's one of the points too to husbands and just to people in positional authority. If we are using our positional authority to become more powerful, we are moving in the opposite direction of God. So if we are using our position to elevate ourselves instead of to get low and care for those whom we lead, we are moving away from God, not towards Him. And God's like, hey, I ain't here, I ain't gonna hear you. I ain't with you. But, as I want to end, I want to hit this part. This is like of seven. You kind of hit around it. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Look, look, what's it say? And as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. If we are to think this has anything to do with value, the scriptures make it certain that is not true. Men and women, heirs together heirs together of the gracious gift of life. Why do all this? Because this is who God is. Look, this, this is the same word used in Romans chapter 8. So it's talking about this idea, trying to cast our mind to this idea. I want to show it to you. Romans 8, 17 says this for us. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Why do this upside down leadership thing? Because we know one day we're going to be robed in white. Like, like why choose to serve now rather than be served? Because we know that one day, this is what it says in Psalm 84, that we're going to get to be doorkeepers in the house of the Lord. And it's going to be amazing. Why would you ever choose to submit only because you know that in new heavens and new earth, you're going to be a co-heir. Jesus is going to be sitting next to the Father, and somehow we are going to be there too. We're heirs, co-heirs. Look what it says, co-heirs with Christ. This is the great gift for us, and this is the reason why everything else makes sense. Because of who we are in Jesus and where we're going. you got to be so thankful that Jesus accounted for our uniqueness and limitation. you got to be so thankful he recognized like our predicament was one of, of a sinner. We were depraved and away from God, didn't know God. But, but Jesus decided to be the supreme being of the universe who, again, threw stars into the sky, yet at the same time he put on flesh and then he started walking amongst us. He started serving us and caring for us and loving us. He lived a life we couldn't live, and then he went to the cross, and he died there. And the reason he died, the reason he got up on the cross is so that our sin would get down in the grave and that we would get up with him one day. And through faith, we get to experience the gracious gift of eternal life that radically changes everything here and now. It makes all of our old values upside down. Because this is what the kingdom of God is like. Ben, you come on up. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get a chance to take communion together. Jesus, you're our Savior and our Lord. We are thankful that, as it says in Romans, we have a good master to submit to. Somebody whom we never have to wonder is working, if is working for our good. But you've proved it to us time and time again by coming to serve, by washing feet, and ultimately through your death on the cross. That's how we know you're good. That's the lens through which we can gaze at every single word in the Bible and to trust that it's for our benefit. Your power is the only thing that can throw off cultural preconceived notions and past even pain and to produce healing and love. And so, God, we just ask today, ask in the name of Jesus Christ, that you would show us what great extent you went to serve us by being low and that that would motivate us 
to value the inward and to be people marked by submission. Only through the name of Jesus can we pray these things. Amen. So now we get a chance to take communion together. We'll have two tables in the front and a table in the back. Communion is a family meal. It's intended to serve to us as a reminder of God's great love for us and what he's done for us. So if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, doesn't matter if you're a member of this church, we welcome you to the table. We'll sing three songs. You can come at any time and come get the, the sermon to your taste buds. If not, this is a great chance to pray and to sit and to think, ponder on God. And we also have a prayer team around the back who wants to pray for all of us. What we'll do, though, is we have um, bread. The bread represents the body of Christ that's sufficient for us. And we have juice. And here's what we've done to the juice. We put a little bit of vinegar in the juice. Here's why. It's because that juice represents the blood of Jesus. And his sacrifice for us was bittersweet. It was sweet. And that it pulls us in. And through his blood, we're going one day get to drink the wine of the new covenant in new heavens and new earth, and we have life. But it was bitter in that a perfect God had to die for us to get that. And it's a reminder that our sin is bitter, but that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So feel free to come to the table at any time in the next three songs, and we pray that it's a ministry to you. Thank you for listening to the Grace City Church Podcast. Whether this is your first time with us or you find the Lord moving you to engage differently or just learn more about who we are, we encourage you to find us at our website at www.thegracecity.com to explore all of the ways that you can give, connect, and engage. Thank you again for being with us. Now go live as image bearers of the King.